this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Thanks for joining me today. This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, good morning. I appreciate you tuning in. We're back in Romans 1 today. Romans chapter 1, we're going to pick up with our new series. We uh, did an overview last week of the entire book of Romans and just kind of uh, highlighted the uh, the big points and tried to get our heads around the overall themes and messages, the main message of, of Romans, which is the gospel of God, is the power of God to bring salvation to all men who believe, first to the Jew and to the Gentile, and that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that takes place there, and that's written rather in the first chapter, Romans 1, and verses 16 and 17. And what I'd like to do this morning is go back and look over this introduction and see what Paul says about himself and what his intentions were uh, in this uh, first chapter of Romans. So if you would pick up reading with me in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So that's a big block of text to, to chew on there, but uh, let's go through it and uh, just see what we can glean from these first 17 verses. In this introduction in Romans is the longest in any of his letters. It's easy to get lost up there at the top. I, I, I was myself in verses 1 through 6 because all that is about Paul's identity and his mission. And it seems like every time he mentions a new name, he's has a parenthetical note. Uh, to say about them, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, he was the son of David, proven to be the son of God. Uh, by grace, I've received this apostleship, and this is why I'm writing to you, verse 7, all 
who are beloved of God in, in Rome. And so all that is just his introduction of himself and, and identifying himself and his purpose for writing, who's he, who he's writing to. And, of course, Paul knew who he was, and he had some contacts in the church in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, he had met previously in in Corinth. Uh, but we have to remember that the, even though the Bible wasn't written to us, it was written for us, and these things are preserved so that we can know and identify who it is that's being inspired here and the legitimacy of his, of his message. Uh, so he says that he's never visited this local church in Roman in verse 10, and he's just wanting to make his identity abundantly clear. And the first thing that we see him say, that we see Paul say, is that he is a trusted bondservant of Christ. Uh, doulos is the word that he uses there, and that's the same word as slave or servant that's translated, depending on your, your version uh, your Bible might say, I'm a slave of, of Christ. And that's the idea there that Paul was appointed. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself in Acts chapter 9. And that's that conversion is repeated throughout um, the book of Acts on a couple of different occasions. And he became this, this bondservant so, uh, and this special apostle as well. And there can be no doubt that Paul was the last of these men to be chosen. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8, I'm going to hop over there and just read that uh, verse quickly, but he acknowledges his apostleship and his commission as being out of due time or being born out of due time. He says that after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, uh, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And so he's speaking about Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and, and the different people that he appeared to. That he appeared to James, verse 7, and to all the apostles. And then he says in verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And I am not the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Uh, and so Paul is here saying, I think by implication, that there would be no more apostles after him. Uh, so he was legit. He was the real deal. Jesus Christ had appeared to him after his resurrection, even after his ascension. Remember on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8 and commissioned him and convicted him uh, as a persecutor of the church and commissioned him uh, to be his, his apostle uh, after he went to Damascus and was baptized by Ananias. And so all that to say that, uh, number one, despite what uh, some religions teach and practice, there are no more apostles. Paul would be the last, was the last. Uh, and number two, his authority as an apostle was equal to that of the other 12 men handpicked by Christ. And meaning that these men these apostles, including Paul, could speak and write by the inspiration of God as they're writing these letters to Rome and Corinth, uh, to Timothy, and of course the other letters that bear the names of men like Peter. Uh, these these men spoke and write, and their, their words bear the full weight and force of his authority. And this is really all over the pages of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in, in righteousness. And 1 Corinthians 14.37 is another big for instance where Paul is saying a number of things there with regard to the assembly 
of the church and how they're to conduct themselves and be orderly and things like this. And he says in verse 37 that um, recognize that, if, you know, if anyone thinks he, he himself is a prophet among you, let him recognize that the words that I write to you are the Lord's command. And so that's, again, one, for instance, where Paul is saying and is reminding us in the church at Corinth, look, what I'm saying is not my thinking. It didn't originate with me. And these instructions that I'm delivering to you are inspired by God. They are the Lord's command. And uh, he goes into more detail about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, actually. But uh, not to get too far off into that, we're just reminding ourselves and establishing the fact, again, that Paul is an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, which is what he's doing here in Romans chapter 1 at the outset, uh, that he has the authority to speak for Christ because he is inspired. And the first thing that Paul mentions here, one of the first things, rather, that he mentions here right off the bat in verse 2 as he, you know, I said he, he makes like every time he mentions a name, he, he adds like one of these parenthetical notes about what he's talking about. And so he says that uh, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. I'm an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, verse one. And then he says something about Jesus and Jesus's identity, that he was promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures beforehand and that he was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. And verse 4, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And so Paul is saying in those few words, as he does elsewhere, that sending Jesus Christ to preach the gospel and establish a new covenant with all people, or give the opportunity to all people to be part of this new covenant, that was God's plan all along from the beginning. And the key word there in verse 2 being from, um, he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture. So going back millennia, you know, all, all the way back to the, the Torah and the first five books of, of the Bible, Jesus fulfilled all prophecies of the Old Testament. And Paul specifically nails down, uh, one, that he, Jesus, would be descended from King David, as foretold. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 also, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, proven according to the flesh by being a descendant of David, whom God said the Messiah would descend from, but but also um, by the fact of his resurrection, that the ultimate proof of his identity, Paul says, is his resurrection from the dead and the spirit of holiness with which he led a blameless perfect life. And so in verse 4, your Bible might have the word spirit capitalized there when it says spirit of holiness. And um, that means that the translators believe that Paul is speaking of uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, but uh, you'll have to double check this. I don't know that Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of holiness elsewhere. That, that word spirit is used in a number of different ways and translated in a lot of different ways in the New Testament either as spirit or breath or mindset. It can it has a whole lot of different meanings and connotations depending on the context. And I believe what Paul is speaking here, what Paul means uh, when he is speaking here of the spirit of holiness in the context of affirming Jesus' identity, uh, I believe he's talking about the spirit that was in Jesus Christ. In other words, his own spirit by which he led a blameless and, and perfect and holy life. 
And the point is, if not for Christ, his teaching, his sacrifice, his resurrection, there would be no gospel. There would be no good news. There would be no grace. And we would all still be hopelessly, hopelessly lost. Uh, And I think those points come by implication anyway, in verses five through seven, that as Paul speaks of receiving grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith uh, among all Gentiles for his namesake. Um, And so he was, again, given this commission, he himself has received the grace of God through the gospel, through the knowledge of Christ. And now he in turn wants to preach that good news to others because, verses 16 and 17, he is convinced and knows that the gospel is God's power to bring salvation to everyone willing to believe it and obey it. Uh, So thankfully now each and every one of us has the opportunity to come to the obedience of faith. That's a a phrase that he uses there in in verse 5, that he wants to bring about the obedience of faith in his preaching among the the Gentiles. Your Bible might say uh, an obedient faith or, or some variation on the theme like this, but that's the idea. You'll see these key words pretty much in every version, depend, you know, regardless of what Bible you're reading from, uh, what translation you're reading from, is obedience and faith. You'll see those key words there in that, that verse so that we can receive the blessings that come from fellowship with Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 that every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. The peace and comfort and joy and hope and forgiveness of sins, uh, fellowship with God, all of that comes through uh, having fellowship with with Jesus Christ. You know, there's um, in our day and time, in our relig- in the in the I guess religious climate that we are in, for lack of better terminology, we um, we hear a lot of fuss made about uh, sola fide. Maybe you've heard that expression before. It means it's a Latin phrase meaning faith only. And, um, you know, we, we hear folks clamoring about that a lot in the religious world and really driving that point home. But I think passages like this and others are calling us to see and, and are pointing out to us that the only recognized believers in the New Testament were obedient believers. They had faith, to be sure, but don't forget this other key word here in the text, that they were obedient and that faith is obedience. And so the question comes for you and me, does that describe who we are? If we profess to have faith in Jesus Christ, do we see that that is not just an, a mental assent to a series of propositions? But faith biblically means uh, it's more akin to surrender it's more akin to submission and obedience, to use Paul's word here from, from verse 5. It, that Yes, it is, it is trust in the one who is calling us to trust in him, to have faith in him, to believe in him, but also not just believe in him, but believe him. Believe what he says in his word. And when he says that if I conduct myself immorally in, in his sight and I, and I go against his revealed word and his gospel, that nothing awaits but condemnation. 
do I do I believe that? And do I believe in turn also that if I if I do surrender to him and submit to him and receive the gift of his grace and acknowledge that I'm an unworthy sinner and and bow down before him and obey his gospel and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, that I I can be brought into fellowship with him. So so biblical faith is not just some mild ascent to a collection of sayings or or maxims, but it's 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 a commitment. Obedience is the true measure of a person's faith. And faith and obedience go inextricably together. And we can see this in a lot of different places in, in the New Testament. Only in obedience is there is there faith. It's not an emotional feeling, it's not intellectual acceptance, but it's faith is an active and living response in in a person. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. One from Hebrews chapter 3. And I'm going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. In Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read in verse 16. So in the context here, the writer is pointing back to the example of ancient Israel and explaining why it is that they weren't able to uh, receive the blessings of God, specifically why they weren't allowed to go into the land promised to Abraham, their forefather. And it was because of their lack of faith and their lack of obedience. And so I want you to see how he uses these two terms interchangeably. And he says in verse 16, who provoked him when they had heard. So here's ancient Israel hearing the message and promises of God and what they're being called to do. And it says, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. Uh, so he's referring to that generation specifically. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And that's a powerful lesson, verses 18 and 19. To whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? Verse 19 again, they didn't go in because of their unbelief. So disobedience, disobedience and unbelief go hand in hand. Right? Just as assuredly as obedience and belief, faith go hand in hand. We can't really separate the, the two. Many have tried, and I think um, James chapter 2 especially has been misconstrued uh, to make it seem like there are, uh, you know, that faith and obedience are kind of um, two separate things, when in reality, I think they're two sides of the same coin. And I think James is making in James chapter 2 the same point as the Hebrew writer is in Hebrews chapter 3 and Paul in Romans chapter 4. James in this chapter, I think, is adopting a definition of faith, at least in part, uh, that many of his uh, audience had adopted, and that was that faith is just kind of this mental ascent, and it, it, it was never accompanied um, and should not be accompanied with uh, works of obedience uh, in order to be valid. And so James begins in verse 14 by asking the question, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, but you don't give them what's necessary, in other words, you don't do anything, 
What good is that? What use is that? End of verse 16. And so James says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And so James is saying that this, that any notion of faith that is not accompanied with obedience is not real faith. It's, it's dead. It's counterfeit. It's not, it's not real. And he goes on to give uh, a number of historical examples. First, he quotes what his audience would say back to him. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And James says that even demons are willing to say that there is a God. Even demons believe there is a God, right? You believe that God is one, verse 19, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And then he goes back again to his point, verse 20, that faith without works is is useless. And so in verse 17, he says, faith without works is dead. Here in verse 20, he says, faith without works is useless. And then he singles out Abraham as an example and, and Rahab and how their faith was perfected, verse 22, made complete by what they did. And Abraham um, verse 23, it was Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness because Abraham submitted. Abraham surrendered to God. He obeyed God. He, you know, you look in, in Genesis uh, 12 through 22 and you, and you read his story and his willingness to leave his home and his relatives and go and wander in the land of Canaan as God told him to so that he could see the land that God would give his descendants and the altars that he built continually throughout that land as he worshiped God, uh, his willingness to believe the promise, uh, his faith in the promise that his, he, though being an old man and his wife Sarah being past the age of childbearing, would have a son, Isaac. Uh, and even though God calls him to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham knew that God would still ultimately raise up generations and generations after him. Uh, through that son. So that that is that is Abraham's faith. It wasn't just Abraham just shrugged and said, "Okay, I I believe in God." No, he he obeyed. He he left, he sacrificed, he worshiped. And so Paul's desire in Romans 1 is to take the gospel to the entire entire world and see and see people turn to God in a faith that changes who they are, changes their behavior. And any other response is simply inadequate. Any other response is simply unbiblical. So people can call it faith all they want to, but if it, if it doesn't change them, if there's, if there's no difference in their conduct and their response to the living God, then it's, it's not real faith. Apart from a changed life, there's no real faith, right? Rahab changed her life. Abraham changed his life because of their faith in God. And that doesn't mean that they earned anything. It doesn't mean that they merited favor from God or righteousness. But because of their willingness to submit and surrender, it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, and Rahab was delivered from the destruction of Jericho. And that's a powerful lesson for us. Again, as we ask ourselves, do I have this obedient faith? Does that describe you and me? And so Paul continues here in verse 9. He, he knows that God is mindful of his every action, and he's revealing his heart to the Roman brethren as he says he's praying for them. He's thankful for them, even though, again, he's never met most of them. He knew them by reputation since their faith was, as he says in verse 8, it's proclaimed throughout the world. So here again we have 
an example of obedient faith that's being commended in the church at Rome. They're they're busy. They're working people, and and the rest of the world knows it. And one lesson I think we can take from that is is to ask ourselves how often do we take the time to pray for our brethren, the world, the world over. You know, we may not know them personally, but they're engaged in the same warfare. They're, and their faith is as precious as the brother or sisters sitting next to us in, in the pew. Right? Second Peter one one, who speaks of our like precious faith. And so Paul prayed for them. It was his desire to impart a spiritual gift to them, verse eleven. And in this context, it's it's clear that he, it doesn't necessarily mean a miraculous gift. Sometimes I think when we hear spiritual gift in the context of the New Testament, we you know think of First Corinthians uh, twelve um, and thirteen and fourteen, and, and the use of those miraculous gifts of speaking in tongues and prophesying, uh, which Paul says in chapter thirteen of First Corinthians have been done away with, or will be done away with in in his time. Uh, but the gift here in Romans one, the spiritual gift here is is that they would be encouraged, that he and the brethren in Rome would be encouraged by one another's faith and that they would be established. And each of us is able to give that spiritual gift to our brethren brethren, if we're willing to make the effort. So take the assembly, for example. When we show up to worship, we have to make the decision to be present, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually, and sing to the best of our ability, and worship to the best of our ability, and listen intently to the Word of God, and focus on the death of our Lord and the Lord's Supper as we remember what He sacrificed, and and shake hands and make sincere efforts to bless other members even when we're not feeling it. Often we have bad attitudes about worship or we come and, and leave feeling lethargic because we're coming and we're showing up and we're waiting for something or someone to make us feel better. First of all, nothing's going to make you feel better. That's not anyone else's responsibility. You have the responsibility and I have the responsibility to, to take ownership of our involvement and encourage others. And what we'll find as we do that as we are seeking to impart a spiritual gift and encourage our other brethren, that we find joy, that we find encouragement follows for us in doing that. And it's going to take effort and it's going to take discipline and persistence. And it's not always going to be easy or fun in the way that seeing Star Wars is fun. But that's because we're we're trying to do something that satisfies much deeper needs than momentary pleasures. You know, we're seeking to be established, to use Paul's word from Romans chapter 1. We're seeking to be established in the faith, to be encouraged together by one another's faith. And so that calls us, as individuals, each and every one of us, to action. So, Paul sought a harvest among the saints at Rome. And he says in verse 13, that's his goal. Whether And whether that was winning new souls for Christ or helping the church increase in maturity and obedience... Either way, he knew he had a duty to all men to preach the gospel. Because the gospel alone, he says, is, again, God's power to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And this last point I want to make, I think, is important from verses 16 and 17. And I think it's going to challenge us and challenge our thinking 
with regard to the sufficiency of the gospel. Because in the religious world, there's a ton of churches or individuals and people who are relying on uh, bait-and-switch tactics or extracurricular activities or spaghetti dinners or luncheons or um, charisma and fancy oratory and all kinds of of different things, high-sounding logic. And they're trying to maneuver audiences and even manipulate to some degree men and women into almost duping them into obeying the gospel, right? The gospel and some donuts and coffee or the gospel and ice cream or the gospel again uh, and and, uh, trunk or treat or something like this. But Paul is saying the gospel is sufficient. Just give people the word of God and those and those with good and honest hearts who are seeking the truth, if you plant the gospel, it is going to grow and bear fruit. Luke 18. Excuse me, Luke 8 and verse 15. And for everybody else, it's not going to matter. And so lead with that punch. Lead with the gospel. Because in it, the righteousness of God is, is revealed. And it's true that his personal righteousness is revealed, but this is talking about God's plan for man's righteousness and how man can stand before him justified. And it's on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And it will always be by faith from first to last, just as Habakkuk was inspired to say, and Paul quotes him here, that the righteous shall live by faith. God forgives and protects and saves those who are faithful to him yesterday, today, and forever. So again, does that describe you and me? Appreciate you tuning in this morning. Please feel free to write in leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org and you can submit your questions or suggestions. I've enjoyed studying with you this morning and hope that you'll tune in again next week. Please continue to pray about these things. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.